Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. If you've been an endurance athlete for any length of time, you've undoubtedly performed some type of test to gauge your form. Be that a 20-minute on-the-road test or a VO2 max test in a physiology lab. There are many forms of testing, and each has its advantages and disadvantages. Today's episode is all about comparing and contrasting the different test methods based on three key aspects. The protocol itself, the data the test provides, and most importantly, the analysis you can do with that data. It turns out there are vast differences between the various testing methods. Before you choose the one you want to perform, it helps to know how much time and energy you need to invest to get the data you're looking for, and then how to use that data to inform your training and racing. We'll analyze each protocol based on its simplicity, how challenging it is to complete, and its effectiveness. Then we'll discuss each method's outcome, the value of the metrics, and its accuracy. Finally, we'll focus on the analysis of each test, why it is the most important thing to consider, and how you use the data you'll be able to generate from any given test. Our guest today is Sebastian Weber, lead physiologist for Inside. You've heard him on Fast Talk several times before, and we're happy to have him back this time as we forge our partnership with Inside. It's test time. Let's make you fast. Fast Talk listeners, we're really excited to be building this partnership between Inside and Fast Talk Laboratories. We've already had a few members sign up and take the Inside test, and this is what they had to say about it. I dig this. I enjoy the challenge of self-coaching, but what I've been looking for is someone to bounce ideas off and help me interpret my progress. I went through the analysis of my Inside test results with Coach Ryan, and I have to say that it's totally worth it. I'm definitely planning a check-in mid-season. Join these members and learn how to fine-tune your training to your body, your race, and your goals. Sign up today at FastTalkLabs.com. Welcome back to Fast Talk, Sebastian Weber. It's been a long time since we've had you on the program. It's a pleasure to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me once again. And I must mention the fact that you are the lead scientist at Inside and and Fast Talk Labs and Inside now have a partnership. So we're really excited about that. We're really excited to to be working with you more closely. Yeah, we are, we are also very very much looking forward to that. The whole team really is 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 very excited and we're cheering about when when they have heard about about this new partnership with you guys. That's great to hear and we feel the same. Our Head coach Ryan Kohler, he actually comes from CU Sports, which was a, a top performance center here in Boulder. But the issue with a, a center like that is it's location-based. We could really only service people here in Boulder. So we wanted to do that, something like that, of that caliber, but make it available to everybody, make it available to all our listeners, all our members, and partnering with you at Inside really gives us that because this is basically lab caliber testing, but it's something you can do at home. It's something you can do on Zwift. You don't have to be here to do it. And if any of you are interested, we've created a few videos about how to do inside testing, what it's like, uh, what to expect from the experience, including Chris and I on Zwift ripping each other apart in an inside test. 
If you want to check those out, go to our website at www.fasttalklabs.com. Great. Yeah. The previous episodes where we've spoken with you, Sebastian, we we have touched upon the, the power of ph- physiological analysis. We really want to get into that today. Compare and contrast a lot of the different methods when it comes to quote-unquote testing. What are those different methods? What are the protocols? What does each measure? And what do you get from it uh, in terms of analysis? Um, and there's a lot out there, and we want to walk you through step-by-step step, uh, and compare and contrast these different methods. So that's, that's the emphasis of this show today. Perfect. Let's do that. Yeah, well, let's. So when I was doing my research for this, I was actually kind of surprised at all the different ways now that you can get at data and do testing. Certainly, when I started out my cycling career, there were you know basically people thought there were there were two ways. One is do that twenty minute test. The other one is find a lab and, and get in a metabolic cart. And so I kind of grouped it all. Uh, so one category is is just what you'd call threshold tests. Really, they're just trying to get at what's your, your threshold power, or FTP, and that's your 20-minute test, your 60-minute test. There's your maximal lactate steady-state test, MLSS, critical power test. Another category of tests that you're seeing more and more of is this uh, power profiling, where you're trying to get at different numbers, not just what's your threshold power, but what's your, your sprint power, what's your one-minute power. Um, maybe what's your, your five-minute power, and different tests will have different protocols. Then there's a whole new way of looking at it that's becoming increasingly popular, which is through the software, using something like your power duration curve, which just accumulates all your data over a given period of time, creates this profile of you based on your peak numbers that you've put out while, while riding and racing, and says, Here, here's a profile of you. So you never actually have to do a test. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's what I would call your physiological test, which is getting a little more under the hood. And that's your metabolic cart and, and what we're going to talk to Sebastian about with inside. Sebastian, you brought this up, and I thought this is a great way of looking at it. And this is how we're going to talk about the rest of the show is there's three considerations when you're figuring out how do you want to test. One is what's the protocol? Second one is what does it measure? And the third and really most important is what analysis can you do? The analysis is, is the one that is, that is most important. And that's really why you should do any kind of testing to work with the data that you get out of it. In terms of efficiency or usefulness or value, you want to compare basically how difficult is a protocol, what effort needs to go in there. What can I do with the analysis? What, what, you know, how can I leverage the data? And if you have more and better data, you maybe accept a little bit more comprehensive protocol or a little bit more logistics around it. And if you have not so much data then, or not so good data, then maybe it's okay if the protocol is not taking up too much time, right? Yeah, I think that's a really important point because I will frequently have athletes come to me and say, well, I did this test and they'll tell me about this complicated protocol and then they'll give me numbers. And they think this is about getting numbers, but the the important question that I'll often throw back at them is, well, what does that number mean? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they can't answer it. And it's go, great, you got some numbers. You you know you can put out a really big power for X number of minutes. But what does that tell you? How do you use that for your training? What does it tell you about where you're at, about your physiology? And they can't give you an answer. 
yeah, if you're going to spend the time, energy, and investment in doing something, the, the what we're hoping, I think, in part to, to clarify today is there are some that give you a lot <laughs> and there are some that don't give you as much. And so where should you invest? All right. Well, why don't we talk about the different uh, protocols for these tests and we, we can start with the threshold test group yeah, we're going to pound through this really quickly because we've talked about almost every single one of these protocols in past episodes. So if you really want to dive into the 60-minute test or an MLSS test, look for those episodes, and, and, and uh, we covered it pretty thoroughly. So this is a fast, let's get through this. And first of all, it's really important to remember when you're talking about test protocols, there's a couple factors to look at. One is simplicity. How complicated or easy is it? How repeatable is it if it is an absolutely killer test that you were able to get through once but generally don't get through? That's probably not a great test. And then later on, we'll get into the effectiveness of this. So as Chris mentioned, there's a bunch of threshold tests that really all they're trying to do is get you one number. What is your FTP or threshold power? You have a 20-minute test, which is 20-minute time trial, and generally you multiply that by 95%. That's the protocol created by Dr. Coggin and Hunter Allen. True FTP test is a 60-minute test, but that gets into the difficulty. 60 minutes is really hard, but it's going to be more accurate if you can do that. A couple others that just give you that threshold number are your MLSS test. And I'm just going to say that's really difficult. That's where you have to do multiple 30-minute time trials taking lactates to figure out exactly what power your lactate levels level out at. So it's a fairly accurate test. It's really good for lab testing. If this is something that you're just using to figure out your own training zones or where you're at, it's not the sort of test you want to do. Critical power test, there's different protocols for it. Uh, it requires shorter efforts. Often a three-minute effort is used. Again, we covered that in depth. It gives you a threshold number. It also gives you what's called your watt prime or your anaerobic capacity. Uh, so check out, we did a whole episode on MLSS and critical power. Check out those if you really want to dive into those. The next type of test is these multiple metric tests. So the classic example here, or one I really like, is Neil Henderson's 40P test. So this is like the 20-minute test, except you do more than just the 20-minute test. The 40P, for example, is a couple five-second sprints, a five-minute all-out effort, then you take a break, then you do a 20-minute all-out effort, then you take a break, and you do a one-minute effort. Chris is giving me this strange look that basically says he thinks I like it because it really hurts, which it does. Uh, what it's trying to get at is giving you more than just that threshold number. It's trying to get at your different energy systems and, and give you a sense of their relative strength. So there are some benefits to doing a harder test like this. But moving down the list... There's tests that really aren't a test. The Probably the, the most common one is looking at your what's called your power duration curve. And this is really hard to explain, so do a search for this. We've talked about this in previous episodes. But it's basically a graph that shows all of your peak wattages from one second all the way out to the longest ride you've done. So it just takes all of your training data, all of your race data, and says, here's the best five-minute effort you've done. Here's the best 
10 minute effort you've done, it, it literally takes every single second, you know, 501, 502, 503, and says, here's the best waters that we've seen, turns that into a graph and then normalizes it. So kind of rounds it out into a nice looking graph. Benefit of that graph is technically you don't need to do any testing and, and that comes with a big asterisk, but it also shows you a profile as an athlete and the shape of that graph will really tell you a little bit about what you're like. I give an asterisk to the testing because it takes all your training data, but the thing is if you're not massaging that graph, you can get something weird. So for example, I don't do any sprinting in the winter. That affects the shape of the whole graph. So as a result, the the longer duration parts of the graph where you're getting into that FTP power tends to be a little higher because I'm not doing sprints. If I then do a sprint in the spring, I've seen this a few times, I do a single five-second sprint, and the next thing you know, my threshold power has dropped 20 watts because it's the first time it's seen a sprint. That sprint has completely changed the shape of my graph. So while a power duration curve technically doesn't need testing, to actually be able to use it to make it beneficial, you need to massage that graph. You need to go out on a fairly regular basis and do efforts of different lengths to make sure that that graph is accurate. Another thing that we have covered very thoroughly in past episodes is your lab testing type test. So this is we get you on a trainer in a lab, and there's a whole bunch of different ways we can test you. I'm just going to break into two categories. One is we hook you up to what's called a metabolic cart and do a VO2 max test. So that's where we're fairly rapidly raising your power and measuring your oxygen consumption. It'll tell you what your VO2 max is and can also give you a lot of other information about your physiology. A different type of test is a lactate test where you can use the full metabolic cart to measure that oxygen consumption, but you don't have to. The key thing is you're taking blood lactates at regular intervals. This sort of test, you have stages. They can be anywhere from about three minutes up to the typically three to five minutes. I've seen them up to 10 minutes. So every, say, five minutes, we're increasing your wattage a certain amount measuring your lactates, and then create a lactate curve, and that will show you where your threshold is at, along with a whole lot of other information about your physiology. The key thing about these lab tests is they're getting inside looking at your physiology as a rider. And finally, that brings us to the inside test, which Actually, the focus here isn't the protocol. The focus here is on the analysis. Inside is somewhat agnostic. So we could actually, if you did a lab test, a VO2 max lab test or a, a lactate test, that data can be used in the inside platform. If you just have a bike and a power meter, then there's protocols that you can do. And they, again, can be somewhat agnostic. It's similar to 4DP where you need a sprint, uh, you need efforts of varying lengths. So the one that Chris and I did were a three-minute test, a six-minute test, and a 10-minute test. But you can do a variety here. So, Sebastian, do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, the so sprint test is meant to, is meant to measure your, your glycolytic power, your VLMX. So how much energy over time, how much power you can produce in your anaerobic lactic system, the so-called glycolysis. And then the three-minute power is used uh, 
to you know to to get a value of your vo2 max which is actually using then already the sprint test so it is it is a combination of both to get your vo2 max and then the six minutes and the 12 minutes are combined versus three minutes used to a normal pretty normal power duration relationship to get a good proxy of your of your threshold value and then what is different uh, in there um, compared to just the normal power duration curve, we are looking at physiological numbers. So you need to put in your gender, you need to put in your, your body weight, you need to have an approximate at least of your body fat uh, so, that, so that, we can, that we can get a rough idea of your body composition. This is all important because this is, makes up those numbers, especially when you talk about things like VLA max and, 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 and fat and carb combustion and so on. So what it then does it, it cross-validates the data against each other. So it's, you know, it's impossible that you have, uh, for example, an, an, an extreme outlier in the sprint, which does not fit to the other data. The software would flag that, right? So there's kind of a quality control um, built in there. So Sebastian, yeah, I think you, you brought up a really important point, which you were just talking about the protocol in terms of what it measures. And that is the really, the next really important consideration with all these protocols what does it measure? And just as importantly, how accurately does it measure these things? So when you're looking at these protocols, you have to consider what does it tell me? Um, how well does it tell me that? And also, as we were talking about with the protocols, how easy or how difficult is it to get there? Doing 20-minute tests and just multiplying it by 95%, that's um, pretty easy to do. But you look at the research, not overly accurate. Mm-hmm. MLSS, really accurate gives you one number really hard to do right not a lot of fun so that's something you you might just use in in a lab when we look at all these tests that we were just talking about sebastian you had mentioned this to us um off mic before and i really like this analogy of how much does it let do does it let you peek under the hood um in terms of of what it's it's measuring so we talked about all these different tests for threshold power they're just giving you one number What's your threshold power? So think of this. It's just telling you how fast you go. That's it. It's not telling you anything about your physiology. When you get to some of the a little more sophisticated, like these 4DPs, that power duration curve, tell you your rider type. So you look at my power duration curve, I'm a pure time trialist. It's practically flat. If you look at a sprinter, their power duration curve, or if they did the 4DP test, their, their sprint power is going to be really high. But as you get to that 20-minute power, it's going to be really low. So... It gives you a little more information, but I would say it's just letting you peek under the hood. The difference with these more physiologically based tests, so that's your, your, your lab test or the inside test, is this is letting you look at the engine. So it's telling you, it'll tell you what your threshold power is. It'll give you a little more about the, your profile as, as a rider that all these other tests give. But on top of that, it's going to look at what's your fuel usage. Are you relying more on carbohydrate? Are you relying more on fat? It's going to tell you a little more about your oxygen consumption, about what's going on with your your lactates. So it's going to give you a lot more information that tells you not just how fast can you go, what's your particular number, but how is the engine generating that? So it's letting you look at the engine, which I think is really important. And loved your description of your protocol there because... Your, your protocol does have some precision to it so that you can get at the, these aspects of, of the engine. Inexperienced hands, all of those numbers 
also don't mean a whole lot. But if you have them and you put them in experienced hands, you can do a lot more with them. You can manipulate training more. You can be a little bit more sophisticated with training, a little more targeted with training. If you are able to look at the engine in this analogy, look under the hood, um, figure out how the rider is producing the numbers, and then use that to inform training and, and sometimes racing. Whereas with the others, you're, it's a number, but you're kind of using it in a blind, uh, in a blind way, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, let's, let's turn our attention to that most important part, the analysis. Um, what does each of these ana- analyze, Trevor? We said this at the beginning. I think this is the really important point to make. You can do these tests and you can get these numbers, but what can you do with those numbers? So this is where you get the value in the test. And as I said, I have frequently had athletes come to me and go, oh, I did this test and it really hurt. And here's a number. So there's just nothing after that. So yeah, yeah. it's and and unfortunately, sometimes I have to tell them that and go, well, great. You have a number, but we really can't do much with this. Mm -hmm. So it's what you can do with that number. And that's the analysis. And that's really the most important part of the test. And this is one of my issues with these threshold tests is you do get that number. So people go, well, look at my FTP is this. And you go, okay. It's one dimensional. Right. So if you're doing a 20 minute time trial, it tells me a lot. Sure. And I can really help you there. If you're doing a three hour road race with a sprint at the end, it doesn't really tell me how you're going to do in that, that road race at all. Well, for the 20 minutes time trial, it helps you to understand what would be the approximately the power output, right? Right, right. Because, because you have this 20 minute. And then what do you do with that? I mean, do you sit down and take the CDA and the wind data and kind of project what, you know, what the time would be? I mean, don't get me wrong. Sorry, I'm a little bit provocative here. But so for the 20 minute power itself, that's it is a benchmark and don't get me wrong it is a great benchmark it is maybe as good as a 10 minute benchmark or a five minute benchmark as you said depending on your race right if it's a three hour race versus sprint then it's maybe not so relevant for you if it's a 20 minute time trial it's maybe more relevant because you could monitor if you do this test again and again you can monitor your progress for this 20 minute right and what this reminds me to a little bit is back in my school days, we would do Cooper tests, you know, Kenneth Cooper from uh, US Air Force, 20 minutes running yep. and looking how far you get. That's basically your 20 minutes test. It was meant to, to check, you know, what's your performance, but it was not meant, okay, then you can maybe with some, as you said, some limited accuracy extrapolate to what your threshold is, but how much does it tell you about how you should train? So it tells you, your power, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what you need to change in training, right? And that's kind of the limitation. So it's easy to do, it's fast, it's doable, you can do it yourself in training, you don't need many tools, software, hardware whatsoever, Um, just look at the average power. Um, But because it's so easy, maybe it also has its limitations, right? So I'll tell you that actually the most useful thing I find when somebody sends me a file and says, here's my 20 minute test is I need heart rate. And I would like to look at their heart rate response to it. So to give you an example, as I said, I'm a pure aerobic animal. I'm not sure there's a, a, a fast twitch muscle fiber anywhere in my body. Uh, 
so when I do a 20 minute test, you see my heart rate shoot up and then it's, it's relatively flat across the test and then it comes right down. So I see that profile and go, okay, there's an aerobic animal. Now I have had athletes that put out the very similar power to me, for example, uh, but you look at the heart rate and it starts low and you just see this very rapid rise over the, the whole 20 minute test. And that tells me this is an athlete that doesn't have quite as well developed an aerobic system and they're actually relying a lot more on anaerobic power. So it's an indirect way to get at some information yeah. about the athlete. Yeah. It's not as good as some of these other tests, but if I do see that and see that very sharp heart rate, I go, you're actually riding above what your aerobic system can do. When we get into those more multi-metrics, so like the 4DP, or let's even talk about the, the power duration curve, where you're seeing a, a little more of a profile of the athlete, I think there's some more analysis you can do there. So, for example, again, I, I'm a time trialer. You look at my power duration curve, or if I do the 4DP test, my short duration powers are, are really bad. Uh, but as you get into that longer duration, 20 minutes out to an hour, even longer, my power stays pretty consistent. So you, you see that profile of a time trialer. Versus, for example, Chris is a, a climber. Uh, so you see... Pretty good five-second power, really good power in that kind of one to five-minute range, and then decent power in that kind of 20-minute to an hour range. So having that sort of information, I think, tells you a little more about what type of rider you are. But Sebastian, what are your thoughts on this? You get, let's say, not a quantitative, but a qualitative analysis of, like, like you say, what, what kind of rider you, you, you are. You obviously get a better understanding, so to speak, if you have data you can compare yourself to, right? If you say, oh, my 20 seconds power, my 30 seconds power is compared to my peers relatively low and or high. Yeah, it, it allows you to, to compare yourself better. I think in terms of training zones, which is what obviously most people use a simple FTP, 20 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever test for, um, it, is, it is not doing a much better job and it doesn't have to, I mean, it's not really making a big difference in improving your performance if your training zone is two two percent higher or lower. Um, but it yeah, it does give you um, you know a good understanding on what kind of rider you are in a qualitative way, if that makes sense. So one of the advantages of something like the four DP or the power duration curve is it allows a lot more individualized zones. The issue with zone and this is how it used to be done. Uh, zones were all based on percentages of FTP. So everybody's, so if you look at the classic Coggin zones, um, everybody's what was called the VO2 max zone, I think that was zone five, was um, up to 120% of, of uh, FTP power. That might be really good for one rider, might be completely off for another rider. So the nice thing when you look at this power duration curve is you can individualize it much more based on your profile. What about, uh, are we moving, moving to the physiological tests now and, and uh, the analysis you can get from them? Yeah, and this is where it gets fun because, again, this is where you get to look at the engine. So you get those numbers. You're going to get an estimate of your threshold power. You're, you're going to get a lot of those numbers you get in the other tests. But this is where you really get to start peering inside, look at what's going on. So it's not just what is your threshold power, but how are you generating that power? And for those who haven't picked up on it yet, that's probably why they named the company Inside, because you're peering <laughs> inside. 
with a little science, yeah, with a little science twist. Part of it, yes, <laughs> that's true. When you're trying to look inside, uh, when you're trying to peer into the engine, what are the things that you're trying to look at? What are the things that are really important to see? The general concept is has nothing to do with with you know with inside with with the software. The general concept is, and that is you know will be familiar for for everybody from from other fields from other expertises is that when you try to optimize something when you try to optimize a process when you try to optimize a, a product when you try to optimize or fix something so to speak because that's def you know that's at the end what you're trying to do with your training right you're trying to fix your performance you're trying to optimize your power output for a b c different specific events then what you would do and what you what you what you would expect an expert to do like an expert like in this case let's say your coach to do is to so to speak sit down for a moment and analyze you know analyze the effort or understanding the effort and then go in and, and understand what are the limiting factors you know what is limiting this athlete uh, from you know reaching a higher performance, higher power output, a higher speed, faster time, whatsoever, in a specific event. Find out about those, and then you are able to tweak those. And this is again, this is the whole concept. Like they always say, when you when you bring your car to a garage because it's making a funny noise or something is broken, you expect the guys to investigate and research what is you know what is broken and the same goes when you see a doctor or you know any kind of consultancy you would you would expect to first looking under the hood looking at the engine and understand okay what can we do to improve do we need to make the chassis lighter do we need to change the gearing box do we need to you know have you know more refs or whatsoever and that is at the end, honestly, it's independent of inside, right? You could also go in a lab for one or two days to get the same amount of data, right? You could do a Wingate test or some kind of shorter sprint test to get to get a grip on your glycolytic anaerobic capacity. You could do uh, a REM test additionally for your VO2 max, an MLSS test for your threshold and so on. The main benefit for you as an athlete is now what, what, what inside is doing and the typical typical you know scenario or typical case of digitalization we, we replaced a good portion of of manual testing and labor by algorithms um, so you get this whole profile you can look under the hood you can look at the engine and understand much much better what is limiting my performance which lever so to speak i have to i have to push which knob do i have to turn in terms of how do i have to design my training um, in order to improve my performance further. So I will actually want to give an example here of the importance of this analysis and, and getting into the, you know, sticking with this metaphor, taking a look at the engine versus just getting these numbers. So I had an athlete that I've been working with for a few years. He lived in Washington, D.C., and there was actually nowhere that we could get him in to be tested. And we were having this really strange issue where about an hour, hour and a half into races, he was getting popped. And so I'd done the 4DP test with him. I knew his, his numbers, you know, what was his, his five-minute power, what was his 20-minute power, his sprint power, his one-minute power. And he was getting popped at wattages that he just look at and go, 
based on, on the testing, you should have no problems doing this wattage. So what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And tried different types of intervals. Nothing seemed to be working. Finally got him to come out to, to Boulder. And we did the full battery of testing on him. So we got him into the, the lab to take a look at him and discovered two things. One is he had had a crash um, right before I started working with him. He had, had a bad crash where he completely snapped his femur and did some muscle damage. So we discovered that he wasn't um, on his right leg. Um, he was never fully restocking his glycogen. And then from the test, we discovered that uh, he was a glycogen-consuming animal. Mm. At very low levels, he was starting to really rely on glycogen and not really use fat for fuel. So what we were discovering is, you know, again, just looking at power numbers wasn't telling us this. What was happening was in that race, even when it wasn't going that hard, he was blowing through his glycogen. And by the time the race got hard, about an hour and a half in, he didn't really have, in, in his one leg, he didn't really have any glycogen left to rely on and just couldn't go hard, couldn't put out the sort of wattages he could put out fresh. That was something that you could only figure out by doing this sort of testing where you can actually look at what's going on with this athlete. Speaks to the the point about the using the right diagnostic tool for the issue. Uh, you were operating blind. You had four numbers that you were quite certain of, but they told you nothing about the problem. Right. Well, I mean, if you just looked at his twenty minute FTP test, it was almost comical. He would do a twenty minute test, and he would average three fifty watts, and then he would get popped in a race, and it goes. So in, in the race, there's a point I was going really hard, and that's where I got popped. I just couldn't hang on. He'd go, you'll, you'll see it in the data. And I'd have to contact him and go, I, I don't see it in the data. And he'd have to tell me where it is. And I'd look at it and go, you did four minutes at 300 watts and got popped. Right. Doesn't What's make sense. What's going on? Doesn't make any sense. Like you can do 50 watts higher than that for 20 minutes. And we could do all the FTP tests in the world. It was never going to tell us what was going on with him. Yeah, because that four minutes happened to be an hour into the race. Like and, an hour, and hour and a half. De and depleted yep. the the thing he needed to produce that energy at that point in the race. Yeah, it reminds me to a story I had about two years ago. Um, I was coaching a guy, a professional guy. He was riding, um, you know, top tens in, in world time trial championships. And I've been coaching him for a long time. And we had a similar problem. We couldn't get into the lab, or we didn't have any, any testing, real testing opportunity. Right. But of course I have all the power data. I have all his power data from racing, from training, like, you know, without any blind spots there. And we kind of stagnated in his training process. Like he was, he was okay, but he was not as his, at his level, right? He couldn't be in the final on the road race. He wouldn't be in the final in, you know, in the classics and struggle to do his job for the team and different things. And, and you know what, I was, I, I looked at the power and analyzed it with, you know, like power duration curves and the efforts and so on. And, and I was absolutely sure what was going on. I was really sure. I really, honestly, I was sort of telling myself, you know what, I've been doing this with the physiological testing for 20 years at that time, approximately, and looking at power data and, you know, seeing it all, so to speak. And I'm pretty sure what's going on. I'm pretty sure his VLI max is X and his VO2 max is why and this is this is the issue and this is what we needed to work on and so on and so forth and then he was 
he was in a training camp with his national federation and there was a physiologist and they had the opportunity at this time we didn't have this ppd technology so you know all the inside testing would rely on lactate measurements at least and so he was in a training camp he had a physiologist with him from the from the, from the national federation and they were able to do a lactate test and tested him and turns out that what i was reading from his training and race data was more more or less the opposite of hmm. what was going on for real really really so without with all the sorry the experience and looking at the data and so on and so forth i was just you know totally on on the wrong track and it shouldn't be so surprising you know you know because look if you know if if it would be simple to just to just do just look at power data and figure it all out um then there would be no need to go into a lab right then you wouldn't have to take your athlete into a lab and then we would not need any human performance labs beside for whatever scientific research and then and then we at inside we would not need i don't know how many thousand lines of code and and i don't know what big kind of servers to crunch the numbers right then if we could all as humans just figure it out in our heads adding adding up some numbers if it would be that simple then then people would not have to do it this effort so looking at from this perspective it should not be so surprising that it can happen that you we look at data look at the raw data and think oh yeah i know what's going on but yeah you double check and maybe in 9 out of 10 cases you were right but um the issue is that one guy the tense guy where you are wrong he is very unhappy if he yes. trains in the wrong direction and turns out with this guy by the way turns out that we changed his training and 6 weeks later he was again where he has been before so yeah. it was just some minor tweaks and here you go again no i completely get that and that's the exact same example with my athlete I man i felt like a horrible coach cuz we were trying everything and it just wasn't yeah. working and yeah. we needed to we need to look at that engine we needed to see what was going on yeah and it's really bad for this one athlete right it's really it's really bad for this one amateur or recreational athlete who's investing a lot of time and trying to you know squeeze out some extra training time and it's also bad for a professional who's trying to make a living out of it and you know is fighting for his next contract so nobody wants to waste his time with the wrong training Hey fellow coaches, we're starting our new coaching community here at Fast Talk Labs. Join us at any level by April 30th for access to our new workshop on how our coaches are using Inside. Then, apply for access to our coaches only forum where you can ask questions and get answers from other colleagues on a variety of topics including Inside, athlete management, testing, new research, workout ideas, and the business side of coaching. Learn more at fasttalklabs.com. So one thing I want to be sure we cl- clarify is the the power of the inside PPD protocol this power performance decoder protocol which allows people to sort of ha- have a lab anywhere um and in your the case of your athlete Trevor uh you were able to get him to come to Boulder get him into a lab but that's you know that's kind of expensive if you had been able to get him to do the inside uh test protocol and analyze the data with with that software you would have been able to sort of 
diagnose this problem much sooner and much more cheaply. Well, I don't think I'm going to say anything that you're going to disagree with here, Sebastian. Um, metabolic carts are great. You get really good data off of them. Um, as a matter of fact, your, your analysis software, if you have that metabolic data from a cart, you can bring it in to your software to be part of the, the analysis. The issue always with a metabolic cart is access. And that was the issue my athlete had. I mean, I was telling him a year and a half before he finally came out to Boulder, we need to test you, but that's a big expense. I mean, he had to fly somewhere. Uh, he had to pay for the, the testing, and he wasn't fully convinced. Well, obviously, afterwards, he was very convinced about the value. Right, right. So this is a way of getting at the same data, but it's a protocol you can do on your trainer, or it's a protocol you can go out on the road and do this and then send the data that allows you to do this sort of analysis without the, having to travel to where you can find a metabolic cart. And, and right. had we, we had inside, we might have solved this a year and a half earlier with my athlete. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's perfectly right. And this is not only a problem in cycling. I mean, you know, I have been working for a decade in, in professional cycling teams and I came from a lab background. So for me, it was, <laughs> it was always a kind of a pain. It was always, you know, unsatisfying to have lab testing, you know, like once a year in the winter time, so to speak. The, the benefits of value from having physiological data is really amplified if you, if you have the data continuously, right? If you can retest, like you say, when you have a specific issue or, you, or a suspicion that, you know, something is going on, something has changed. And, and you as a coach are actually saying, well, it would be great to have that data. And yeah, that was part really part of the main motivation, uh, you know, creating insight. This was always a bit of a pet peeve of mine is some labs you go into and they want to put you on this top of the line, really expensive Velotron bike or an SRM bike <laughs> and go, well, we're giving you the most accurate power numbers. And whenever my athletes go and get that test and they go, oh, that got great numbers because it's on an SRM bike, I just go, what if your power meter is 20, 20 watts off of that bike? Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I'm very big on testing on your bike because that's what you're going to be training on. So that, yep. that, that closer you can get it to, to reality, the, the better. And we have, we have professional cycling coaches now actually spreading the day out or uh, the testing out over three, sometimes even four days, the efforts. And the feedback is that, yeah, you maybe have a little bit more noise in the data, right? But coaches feel that they have more uh, applicable data because you kind of get the average over a whole week, a whole training week. And what often happens, especially when people try to prepare, especially for testing in the lab, is that you have kind of this artificial scenario, right? Where you maybe have a week of unloading and two days rest and then a specific nutrition or something. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, how good do those numbers really reflect what's going on in training? Right, when you want to use the data primarily to make an informed decision about your training. So, yeah, what what we have seen is that that, that coaches really appreciate to um, to to not trying to create this artificial lab testing scenario, but um, test as close to real life conditions as possible. Power meter being one part of that. So I think this really goes back to this the the importance of the analysis, and so. 
what we thought we would do today that, that would be kind of fun, and thank you, Sebastian, for being willing to do this. Chris and I both did the test, so we want to give a few examples of the analysis. Um, Sebastian hasn't seen our data, so we're going to just give him our data today and see what he comes up with. So, Sebastian, if you're, you're game for this, why don't we start with my data? So my target event this year is a four-day stage race. Uh, so I'll be doing the, the hopefully the Pro 1 field, possibly the 1-2 field. So it'll be kind of domestic U.S., kind of Cat 1. Right. Okay. So, you know, similar to what I, I, I tried to explain before, what we want to start with here is understanding the efforts that decides the race. Right. I mean, in most cases, is there are certain decisive moments. Could be an attack, could be a sprint at the end. Obviously, depending on the tactics, depending on the race, depending on whoever is there. So, to understand what we're aiming for in training, we want to understand what are the race demands here. Um, I give you one example. Um, next weekend, I go to a ski race, cross-country skiing. The race is approximately two hours a little bit more than two hours, but um, the race decisive moment happens on, on a climb or the little climb just, just before the finish, which will take approximately four minutes-ish, right? And so the competitors in, 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 in the last years have always been close together before the, on that climb and then on that little climb, it kind of separates and, and, um, and, the, and the race is decided. So the first step here would be to understand which moments would decide a race or which moments did you in the past, so to speak, lose a race, right? Where did you, where did you get dropped? So to understand which domain, more like a two minute or five minute or whatever it is, which domain of power output you're trying to improve. And hopefully, you know, you, we, we can construct a number here um, on what would be the power output that would allow you to whatever is the, is the demand, stay with the pack or actually win the race. With this particular race, what I would say, first day is a 10-minute hill climb time trial. Uh, I would like to not embarrass myself there. Uh, 10 years ago, I did well there, but uh, don't think I'll do that again, uh, but would like to not embarrass myself. Then it's two road stages. I'm not going to be a guy for the GC. I'm not going to be on the, the podium I'm looking more at in one of those two road races, which are rolling, they have some hills in them, to hopefully get into a breakaway. That would be, to me, a huge success for the race. Okay, what, what, what effort do you need to go into the breakaway or to drive the breakaway? Probably two minutes all out to get a separation and then another five to 10 minutes of well above threshold to uh, solidify it. And then after that, it's probably gonna be a long period at or close to threshold. So actually, 2011, I was in the all-day breakaway, and I was the, the virtual leader on the road for the whole day or most of the day. So, Okay, so the numbers I do have here in race conditions is 71 kilograms, and for three minutes, an average power of 447. So let's approximately 450, right? The other effort I have is 10 minutes, 426, okay? And if you just keep your, your, the performance of your last test with 62 uh, VO2 max, but you just drop the body weight, because of the drop in body weight, your VO2 max would go up to a, a notch below 66. 
if your VLMAX is approximately 0.25, which again equals to a little bit below 600 watts for 15 seconds here in your case, you could you could not do those efforts most likely, um, to be honest, because basically the the amount of glycolytic energy you would need to produce not really be able with this low with with, with that low VLA max. So what what you need to think about is when you when you race hard and you fatigue and you accumulate a lot of lactate and your creatine phosphate levels drop and your pH level drops. The drop in pH level inhibits your glycolytic energy production. And for the three minute effort with 0.25, you are basically too far off. Um, you know your your maximum glycolytic power is not is not high enough when in a case when it would not be inhibited, so like a clean sprint, right? From standing start, from rest. It would be no problem to produce the amount of power you would need in this case. But for a full three minute, where again, all these, you know, fatigue metrics, so to speak, kicks in. So drop in creatine phosphate, drop in pH levels. Um, and basically what I'm saying is you're inhibiting, you're hampering an already low, VLMX, glycolytic energy release will not be enough to cover um, to cover what you need because your VO2 max with 66 is, you know, it's it's approximately only 380 watts. So you're asking your glycolysis to produce another 70, 75 watts approximately. And that would not be possible. So you would need uh, you would need a VLMX, I can tell you, more in the range of 0.45 in order to do that, okay, for the for the three-minute effort. And for the 10-minute effort, because it's longer and it's, you know, it's obviously um, lower power, it's not that far away from your VO2 max, right? Uh, for that, you could you could still you could still have um, a VLMX a little bit below 0 0.4 and still be able to do it. So my issue is going to be the jump from the field. Right. So to jump away, to jump to jump away and to stay away, um, that's, yeah, that's, that is, again, the, the, the tough part because your VO2 max is only approximately 280 watts. Um, this is what you can produce aerobically. And you will, in two minutes or, or two or two and a half minutes effort, you will burn quickly through the, uh, you know, through decreasing your creating phosphate stores and, this is what happens when you, when you when when you hit VO2 max, and then the additional energy needed is not you know you cannot cover that under these conditions with uh, with with that low VLA max. So 0 0.4 0 0.45 is what you would need to see. Or obviously you could just increase your VO2 max, right? So that's that's the other part of the game. If you are saying you are not able to increase your VLA max. Um, you could you you could go with the VO2 max in a ballpark of a little bit above seventy and then be able to do it. Or you stick a frame pump in the spokes of the person sitting on the front of the field, cause a massive pileup right behind you as you go, Trevor. That's the only way you're gonna be able to pull this off. I think I might have done that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Were you in a movie once? Quite possibly. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're, you're getting my February numbers, and I wasn't in great shape. So my hope is that I'll, I'll raise both. But definitely that, that comically low VLA max is an issue. So what would you be telling an athlete like me to do to get that to where it needs to be? Right. The, the, the you know, difficult or the, the complex part of your training program is going to be to, to, to increase your VLA max a little bit by still maintaining or increasing your VO2 max, right? This is two-minute effort. Um, it's highly efficient because, yeah, in two minutes, you will, you, you will max out your aerobic system. So uh, um, more than 80% of the energy in the, in the two-minute effort is coming from the aerobic system. So, you know, focusing or making sure that you don't lose the VO2 max uh, in training is, is absolute of... Of highest of highest priority, right? Um, for the VLMX in your case, because you are naturally low, right? It's not like you are kind of average VLMX, but because of the training and nutrition you've done, you're now lower. That that's not the case, obviously, right? So in your case, I would really focus on um, short sprint efforts, and I would definitely put you in the gym um, and really focus on. Um, in the gym, for example, focus on uh, a weight and a load that enables you to do approximately 15 repetitions in about 20 seconds. So you would need to do it fast and you are not allowed to rest in between, right? To really also there in the gym have a high power output on an isolated form like an leg press or something. Um, that's one thing I would do. And I would try to keep it time-wise away from, from your endurance training. So separate it, space it out as good as possible in, instead of going to the gym and directly do a three-hour ride or vice versa, right? Um, that will be the most important pieces. And if you have seen a higher VO2 max, and here we go back to why it is important, why it's helpful to test regularly. If you've seen a higher VO2 max, whatever, last year or two years ago, then I would definitely look at the training you've done before to get kind of an idea. Um, maybe tweak it a little bit, obviously. Um, and use this as a starting point to get your VO2 max up a little bit. With a low VLMX of 0.25, I would be very careful in your case, can be totally different if somebody with a different VLMX, but would be very careful with too high intensity like too high intensity in terms of interval training or if so not long ones so i would like for the high intense stuff i would be very careful to apply anything in your case longer than 40 seconds um, because the reliance on the on the glycolytic system will be very high and again it's not it's not super strongly developed and it's not going to be great fun for you and i would totally avoid something like two minute all outs or three minute all outs i would either go to like 30 30s like very high end but really short or something up to maximum of threshold but everything in between so to speak i would i would avoid in your case and then definitely of course look at the total training hours to make sure that you get in enough hours um, to keep your VO2 max high because what is often overlooked is that a, a good high and especially stable VO2 max comes from a good high stable training volume. Now that's really interesting because I, when I look back on my best years, I've done this analysis to figure out what's the, the work that really benefits me. One is I need to be in the weight room. 
almost all year round, and it's exactly the sort of weight training that you're describing. Uh, and that's been an issue for me this year with, with COVID because the weight rooms are all closed, so I haven't been in the weight room. Number two is I, I did used to do the, the two minutes on, two minutes off intervals and switched to more of a Tabata style. So I was doing 2010s, 15-15s, 30-30s and was much more successful to, with those as my high-intensity work, which is exactly what you're describing. And then, yeah, I always need to do big volume in order to be able to compete. So you you got me spot on. That's that's pretty fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> Chris, are you ready to give Sebastian your data and let's see what we discover? Give me your numbers. Okay, what do you what do you need here? Give me your body weight, body composition or approximately body fat. Yep. And the VLA max and VO2 max of your inside testing. Okay, so body mass 62.7 kilos body mass index 20.5 no give me the, oh, the body give fat, me the fat. Uh, yeah, body fat six yeah. percent really okay you said vo2 max yeah uh 65.1 or nice. do you want the total uh, it doesn't matter i can okay and then vla thing. max 0.52 okay and you said 62 what uh, was it, kilograms? 62.7, yeah. Okay, okay, good. Okay, cool. And what do you aim for? Like, what is your goal? So the event that I'm doing this year is uh, a bike packing race across Ireland. It's 2,500 kilometers long. So, Ouch. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we said. <laughs> is Ireland that big? Uh, well, if you ride on every road that touches the Atlantic coast, then yes, it, it okay. it's kind of like riding okay. through the I folds see. of the brain, you know? Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's not a straight line from not one part of line. Ireland to the yeah. other at yeah. all. Okay, this is where the 6% body fat came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping to actually add weight by drinking Guinness and eating scones the whole time, but we'll see. I'm probably going to burn some calories too. Right. Yeah. How many hours do you train per week? Like 12 maybe approximately? Or what is your approximately Yeah, training? you know, I would say probably 12, 12 to 14 on average. Um, just did a, <clears throat> a big week for me would probably be 22, 24. Ouch, okay. And how often do you do that? Oh, once every three months. <laughs> it is not straight in terms of there's a lot of attitude. There's a lot of vertical measures you have to you have to cover, right? There's not a there's not long sustained climbs there, but there are some punchy, sure. steep stuff. Yeah, 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 and, it, yeah and it'll yeah, add yeah. up over the days. So look, your your data and and what you're aiming for is uh, from a physiological perspective, it's relatively straightforward, right? Because because it's not a bike race where you you know need to combine endurance with with a sprinting effort at the end or being able to jump into a group if you know what I mean right, right it's exactly. not about it's not about repeated uh, high intensity effort so so the so the event um, you, your your goal is, you know is is much more straightforward mm -hmm. right now. Um, your physiology, therefore, is also a little bit more straightforward because, you know, checking boxes here, okay, body fat, yeah, sure, you know, that's checked. Um, for the for the amount of training that you're doing, like we already discovered, um, a VO2 max 65 is very good, 
right? It is it, it is a very good uh, VO to max per se. Um, and what we see here is, at, you know, different to to Trevor, um, is actually that uh, for what you are trying to do, your VLM max is relatively speaking high, or let's put it this way, offering the biggest room for improvement. Mm. And this is not because 0.5 something is per se a super high VLMX. This is because the influence of the VLMX on, for example, your substrate utilization, so on uh, how much fat and carbohydrates you, you're using or the distribution of this, the influence of the VLMX increases with the VO2max. So if your VO2max would be 40, then we should not, we would not have to, you know, to bother about the, you know, your VLMX. But because your VO2max is 65, um, and most likely we will not get it to 80 uh, for mm. for your event. Um, VLMX is the, you know, is so to speak the biggest lever or the biggest knob you have here. You know, it 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 offers the biggest room for improvement, especially, um, you know, with your with your uh, VO2 max. And you can see it in the data. I'm just looking, for example, if your fat combustion curve, which is, you know, it's it, it has this, you know, um, like uh, you know, this this curve has an apex, right? It's like a bell curve, and it is pretty symmetric, which means the bell is, yeah, more or less in the middle of the curve. And if your VLMX would be lower, it would be more asymmetric. So, you know, the apex, the, the highest, the, 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 the fat max would be shifted closer to your, to your, um, to your threshold power. Mm -hmm. And that is especially because, um, yeah, you have to carry some weight with you, not your own weight, but, uh, but um, from your from your bike and equipment and everything yeah. you're, you're you're taking with you, you know, increasing the fat combustion rate to higher power and and having the fat max at higher power output and sparing carbohydrates in this race, uh, you know, two thousand five hundred kilometers. That that is the main goal. So first conclusion here basically is you need to get. You need to get your your VLMX down, and with this race couple of months out, that the good news is that um, you know there is also um, there's also enough time um, to do that, right? Yeah. Um, so so interesting because most of the time people think, oh, I I want all my numbers to be higher. That that you know, in a very simplistic way, people are just striving for more. Whereas you're saying the VLAMX needs to come down or should come down. That'll improve other things. Um, that'll help me through a race like this. So the the question becomes, how does one reduce or or lower their VLA max number? Yeah, which is actually have, be, have has becoming a very a very popular question <laughs> um, because people understand that this brings up your FDP and because everybody's so focused on FDP, um, this is a very popular question. However, we just learned in Trevor's example that it's not all about FDP. So there are uh, many, many cases where you should bring VLAMX up. But anyway- yeah, I was also so, going to say with me, everybody's asking you, how do you bring your VLA max down? My question is, can I bring my VLA max down? No, no. <laughs> is it you possible? Set, you set the standard for low and everybody, you know, everybody's relative to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so bringing it down uh, can be tricky. 
I would even say it can be sometimes be more tricky than actually bringing it up. Um, because um, look, there's a little bit of, of, um, of, an, of an issue here that your VLMX comes a lot from the more fast twitch or obviously the more glycolytic fibers because this is what VLMX is, right? Um, glycolytic power. So, so, um, so what you want, you want those fibers to adapt, those muscle fibers. But those fibers, you will only recruit either when your slow twitch fibers are already fatigued uh, really a lot or um, when you increase when you, in, when you increase intensity, you start to recruit more of those FT fibers. And the issue is when you increase intensity that uh, you have more anaerobic uh, you know, energy release and therefore you are in the danger, so to speak, to, to, to apply a training stimulus, which is actually has a positive influence in terms of increasing your glycolytic power or performance. It is a little bit of a fine line here. Um, the most classic approach and a little bit of a trick is then to say, okay, we go to an intensity at approximately threshold. So for you, somewhere in the ballpark of 260 watts. Um, we go to approximately threshold and then, which is where you really start to, you know, uh, recruit a lot of those more fast twitch fibers. And then we're increasing the torque by reducing the cadence, sorry. Uh, because you know, increasing the torque, um, you know, potentially also recruits more of those FT fibers. So, in your case, you would sit more at threshold zone, slightly below threshold, maybe even. This would be one thing you you can and should do regular on a, on a regular basis. Um, on top of that, I would I would recommend to go to um, to use intervals which are um, approximately 20% above threshold. So in the ballpark of 300, 310 watts for you. Um, because looking at your data, your, your utilization of your VLMX at this intensity is below 10%. So it's still relatively low. So the stimulus on your glycolytic system, you know, is, is not huge. Um, you are only accumulating 1.1, 1 millimole of lactate, 1.2 millimole of lactate at that intensity. So you can, um, you can sustain it for, for several minutes. VO2 would go to, towards VO2 max in this, in this case. And I would actually combine that using this as kind of the primer effort. So I would use those kind of intervals uh, for maybe like four to six minutes um, at 300 to 310 watts. I would use those as a primer to slightly, decre slightly decrease your glycogen and then either in the next session or on the same day, use these more, you know, torque related um, efforts to, you know, recruit your FT fibers as well, but not producing that amount, that high amount of lactate. And then the third and really important piece of training for me here would be um, to make sure that you have a great consistency. You have a great consistency, you would repeat even a small dose of this kind of training. So you don't have to do this for two hours or one and a half hour or something per day, uh, but have this kind of training included more or less in a daily regime um, and make sure that, that, that your training is not 
is not really so much of a weekend warrior style that you really try to distribute training training hours um, relatively equal um, throughout the week so that you you know more or less speaking go and ride your bike every day and include some of these training methods more more or less maybe not precisely every day but uh, on a on a very regular basis does this make sense so interestingly a few years ago chris and i worked together he was doing this race uh dk unbound yep. unbound now that was a long gravel race you're talking 12 to 14 hours depending on how quick mm-hmm. you are 200 miles yep we had similar, very similar discussions about Chris because we knew he was explosive. We knew in a two, three hour race, he had that, that big power to drop people to, to be the first to the top of the climb. But we also knew when he and I went out for a six hour ride, by the end of that six hour ride, I was able to, to hurt him because that was, you know, that stamina was really my strength. <laughs> so when we are mapping it out, um, we are less concerned about the, particulars of, of a lot of the interval work. Um, one of the things we really focus on exactly what you're talking about is mapping out the weeks and making sure that he was doing consistent bigger volume to, to fatigue him a bit and, and uh, keep him pushing through that. Uh, we were having him do some big long rides on the, on the weekends because he couldn't do them during the week um, and often having him doing some efforts towards the end of those rides. And as I remember, the one interval workout that I gave him was hill repeats, very similar to what you're describing. So they're a little over threshold, but the the requirement was they needed to be consistent. So he would do four or five repeats, but you you couldn't be explosive. You couldn't attack on them. I wanted that fifth one to be just as fast as that first one. So the one thing that I didn't think about and makes a lot of sense that you just brought up is, is getting some of that big torque work in there as well. Yeah. And by the way, that, that's good that you mentioned it. Um, what would need to happen here in your case, Chris, is that, because I, we haven't talked about, I don't know how you get your VO2 max value of 65, but Genetics. of course this whole, you know, this, this, this whole training, like, like all other training where you try to, where you try to work on your weakness, you have to make sure that you don't lose, lose your strengths. Sure. Right. Um, so a VO2max can react in terms of an adaptation upwards and downwards within a couple of weeks. You could, in a lab test, already see a tendency um, within one to two months, you would have a strong tendency if it's, if it's going in a direction you want or you don't want. So that is something I would, I would emphasize here doing in your case. Um, when you change your training, you know, to work on a weakness, for example, in your case, or work on a potential to say in a positive way, bring down your VLMX, you want to make sure that, especially if that new training program differs significantly to what you have been doing before, you want to double check in relatively soon um, to make sure that you're not hurting one of your strengths, in your case, your your VO2max. So this kind of goes back to the idea, uh, yeah, you maybe need to test on a, on, a, on, a, on a kind of a regular basis, or not regular, but, um, you know, in a smart way, so to speak. So it doesn't have to be static every three or four, every three or four months. But in your case, I would suggest a retest, for example, six weeks after you change your training mm-hmm. to understand, is it hurting my strengths and not right. only, uh, in, you know, uh, working on my weakness. 
Sebastian, give us an example outside of the sport of cycling. We 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 tend to gravitate towards that sport because we love it and we know it well. But um, you know, we're speaking to non-cyclists out there, and I know inside is a tool that's valuable for other endurance athletes. So, give us an example. Well, I think one of my re most recent examples would be actually from from cross-country skiing. We have seen athletes trying very hard you know, to increase their endurance performance, so to speak, also in cross-country skiing, right? Increasing their lactate profile curve in terms of a right shift, um, which is similar to trying to in increase your FTP. This is not a cycling specific thing. This is something in all different kinds of sports. We have this in swimming, we have this in, in speed skating, uh, in, in, in canoeing, like, like, you know, almost everywhere. What we've seen and what I've lately seen again in, in the world of cross-country skiing is that athletes have tried to, to improve this metric over the years, over, you know, several seasons uh, and have done so successfully, but the race performance didn't go up. So, their lactate value at a certain speed is lower or their speed at a certain lactate level is higher. Um, they also do, by the way, sometimes something like 20 minutes test or 10 minutes test and it's improved, but the race performance didn't. Then, as I said, I lately was, was at this race and just before that we had, we had looked at, uh, we, we did some, some, some testing on, on roller skis where you, what you use to kind of simulate cross-country skiing. And, and what, easily happened and I had, I had you know two guys of that uh, what, what happened what if you look historically into their data is that they increased their in, in their, their threshold performance but by doing that they actually decreased VLMX which could be okay in some cases as we have seen right but they have also decreased their VO2 max so if both metrics go down in a certain relationship, in a certain proportion, then you can still increase your threshold power, right? But when it comes to the race, like in this cross-country race, like uh, it was decided in an attack, I think approximately 50 minutes before the finish and the attack was approximately three minutes long or two minutes long. So in, such, in these situations, and this is by the way, very similar to canoeing. This is very similar to speed skating, to swimming, right? There's a whole race is maybe only three, four minutes. Uh, there's also some, 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 some cross country skiing races, which are approximately that duration. So, so the race was won in this attack, approximately, you know, uh, 50 minutes before the finish in about in a three minute attack. And yes, the athlete I'm, I'm have in mind here would have been able to stay with, with the winner of the race after the attack because the threshold power is high enough but he didn't have any chance to respond to that attack. Because in a three minute effort, as you can imagine, you need a high VO2 max and you need a high VLA max or a certain, like a decent VLA max, right? You have some anaerobic energy contribution as well. The threshold power there, the increase, the increased threshold power didn't really help. And this was very, you know, from a, on a motivational level, it's very difficult for an athlete to see you know, the main number I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for in training, I'm monitoring is going up my threshold power, but my race performance is not going up. It's not doing the same thing. So I was, I was lucky to see the race and see how it happened. And then, you know, it kind of makes sense that, okay, the race is two hours long, but it is decided in a three minute effort. So your threshold, your 
substrate utilization you might think is important because it's two hours, but the race is decided in a short effort and just improving your, your threshold didn't help uh, in that case because unfortunately the threshold was improved by decreasing both aerobic and glycolytic power simultaneously. Also, I think that's really a good example of what we've been talking about of the dangers of just focusing on one number. If this athlete was watching their threshold, they, they probably went into this race with a lot of confidence going, well, that number is great. Not realizing that they, they didn't have the, the, the right assets, uh, the right profile yeah. to, to perform in the event. Sebastian, you, you've been with us before. You know how we like to close out every episode. It's a tough task, but I, I know you're up for the challenge. Uh, you've got one minute to encapsulate everything we've talked about here. Give us a final message of the most important take home that people should leave us with. For me, the most important message of today hopefully was, or for me, it should be at least that when you do any kind of testing, no matter what, um, you want to think about how much value it brings um, for the event or for, for, for the goals that, that you really have. You can look at the example I just made from, from cross-country skiing. Um, you should look at, the, at um, you know, how often can you do the testing? Uh, how often can you benchmark your performance? How good can you monitor your progress? Because this is where the value comes from. So the testing that you're doing has to be meaningful for what you're aiming to do, right? Um, if, you know, a threshold maybe is not what you need in a race because you're aiming for an Ironman or the race is decided in a three-minute effort or in a sprint, then threshold is not important at all for you. Um, so think about which metrics are needed for your race and think about, um, how you can measure, test, monitor those and how often you can monitor those so that you can really use it to make an informed decision of your training. This for me should be the takeaway. The, the phrase you get what you pay for is actually not appropriate here um, because sometimes you pay a lot, quote unquote, pay a lot by putting in a huge effort in the testing, but you get very little out of it. So keeping in mind the investment that you've put in whether that's uh, financial investment in terms of uh, paying for something or paying for a, a device that you need to do a certain test or, or whatever, or, or just probably more appropriately, the amount of energy and investment of time into a certain um, uh, test. You, you wanna make sure that you're getting well rewarded for all of those efforts. So keep that in mind when you select the test. Um, and then, yeah, the, 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 the ability to repeat that often to benchmark yourself, to uh, decipher the progress you're making, things like that, that is also a very important factor in what you choose and, and how you choose. Trevor, what would you like to close with? I think I'll close with a, a theme that we brought up in a few episodes, which is when you are doing testing, this is not racing. A lot of athletes go into testing thinking this is about performance and it's all about getting that one big number. And if you can just hit that biggest 20 minute or five minute or whatever minute power bigger than anything you've ever put out, then that's the purpose of the test and, and you've been successful and now you're going to have a great season. Races are for racing. That's where you want to perform. Testing is for figuring out you as an athlete. And you want to make sure you're doing a test that reveals who you are, 
tells you about your physiology, tells you about your strengths and weaknesses, and allows you to make good decisions or your coach, more importantly, your coach to make good decisions about what sort of work you should be doing so that you can perform in the places where it counts. Thank you, as always, Sebastian. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Always enjoy having you, Sebastian. Do you you hear the vacuumizer from next door? No. Good. No? (laughs) No. I I need to tell you that it's crazy. We have neighbors. They're vacuumizing their, 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 their greens, their garden. What does vacuumizing mean? Uh, from a vacuumizer, like normally you you, you use to, to clean your, your carpet in the oh, house. Oh, vacuum, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're vac- doing this with yeah, they're doing this with, with the grass. Yeah, we saw that that there are no leaves <laughs> on the grass. Twice a day. The, wait a second. D- remind you want, me. A, you want a picture? <laughs> yeah, I kind of. I actually, picking I, up I, dirt. And they do realize their grass grows in dirt. That you you want to leave that you dirt in, there. Are you in Switzerland or Germany? Yes, you're in yeah, Switzerland. I'm in Switzerland. Okay. Yeah, so but it, our neighbors are German. Oh, <laughs> it's because of the leaves, Chris. There's not a leaf allowed or something else on. Yeah, the that lawn. there's probably a thousand <laughs> franc fine for having a leaf. In that's your yard. pretty funny. Twice a day. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Sorry to get, take a detour about it. It's, I heard it very loud and I was wondering if you hear it. So That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Sebastian Weber and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.